Welcome to Deep Breath In, the podcast series from the BMJ, sponsored by Medical Protection, that tackles the everyday challenges of being a GP. During the coronavirus pandemic, we're seeing death rates that we've never seen before in our lifetimes, particularly in those who are elderly or with multiple comorbidities, but also amongst the young and healthy. As GPs, we can play a pivotal role in supporting patients and their loved ones at this time. In today's episode, we're looking at how we can talk to patients about end-of-life planning and how we can support those who have been bereaved as a result of the virus. We'll hear from Scott Murray, Professor of Palliative Care, about advanced care planning, and Catherine Shear, a leading expert in grief. I'm Tom Nolan, a GP in London and clinical editor for the BMJ. And once again, joining me today, we have... Hi, I'm Nabjoit Lada. I am a locum GP and I'm the head of education at the BMJ. And I'm Jenny Rasanathan. I'm a family medicine doctor and clinical editor for the BMJ. So a bit of a heavy topic today, um, talking about death, um, but I think a really important one. And and I know you were were keen to cover this in our podcast, and Mm. I I guess the world's been turned upside down by us trying to avoid death, but maybe people still aren't really talking about it that much. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. It's such an important topic. And I think we are talking about it in some ways, but in a way that I think, um, like, oh, it's almost like the really important and kind of practical things are, are being unsaid as we kind of have all this conversation about death rates and climbing death rates and these kind of daily trackers of people dying. Um, and then you think about, well, the people behind that um, and the kind of, effect that must have on loved ones who often, you know, we're hearing stories about people um, not being able to be with their loved ones when they're dying in intensive care or in hospital. Um, And we're also hearing about, you know, a lot of what we're talking about with social distancing. I mean, to bring it back to the kind of personal, like when I've, you know, when this all started and I was talking to my parents about, you know, you must stay at home, you must stay at home and kind of what what was kind of going unspoken and all of that was like, you know, I I don't want you to die and I'm really worried about you. And kind of, I I think it's kind of looming everywhere, but actually did I turn that anxiety into a practical conversation about, you know, if the worst were to happen, what, you know, what what would you want to do? And it feels like there are these opportunities to kind of um, think about what we could be doing in general practice um, to, as you said, Tom, to support um, our patients, to support their loved ones and um, and to kind of shift the focus away from um, these kind of really alarming news reports that we're getting of, of how many people are dying and just think, well, actually, what can we do? Mm. And I guess, Jenny, you're, you're there in Cambodia and, and I suppose... I suppose none of us can really see our parents, so maybe it's less of an issue. But have you have you found that with with um, relatives and and have you had those conversations about death? So I've had conversations about my parents with my siblings, um, where I've been pretty blunt about the risk to our parents. I have not had it directly bluntly with them, um, like you, Navjoit. But I think 
the writing is on the wall. And I think my mom in particular is, is just very fearful of going outside and specifically fearful of dying um, as a result of, of, of getting, getting this infection. I'm that, that being said, I'm, I'm grateful that they're concerned in contrast to some of my friend's parents who are disregarding messages around social distancing, continuing to see their friends who are finding it really challenging to change their behavior. And the question that one of the questions that keeps coming back to me is, well, how long do we continue in this holding pattern? And what is the value in their life? Um, in the case of my parents, you know, a couple of months staying inside, not seeing their grandparents is understandable. Six months? A year? And and for others, it the question may be even less clear. At what what point is life actually losing its luster, losing its value when when you're not seeing the people you love? Yeah. I guess like Netflix is good, isn't it? But maybe after six months or so of, of just watching Netflix, I, life life might not be so appealing. It's only so much that Netflix can do. <laughs> yes. Um, and I, I'm just turning to, to our role as GPs in all of this. Um, you know, I, th- I feel like over the last 10 years or so with like the fragmentation of primary care, um, you know, of course we don't see patients out of hours unless we work for an out of hours provider in the UK. Um, palliative care services have kind of taken over much of that those last days and even the last year of life for a lot of patients. You know, what what is our role in all this? Well, I mean, I think we're <clears throat> we're still the the ones who care for people with um, you know through, throughout their kind of um, throughout their kind of chronic conditions and multimorbidity and providing that support. Uh, and often we know patients will know their kind of, um, you know, what, what their situation at home is like and how they're living. Hopefully we might know a little bit about what their values are. So I think there's an enormous role for GPs, really, in even if, you know, care is fragmented. Certainly in the UK, at least, the GP is still the kind of central linchpin, if you like, of, of all that care and, and coordinating all that care um, and can be a really powerful advocate as well for patients um, for, you know, making sure that their needs, values, wishes are being met. And I agree. And I think another thing that um, is an asset in this situation for GPs is our inclination toward um, appreciating a patient's family circumstance and getting to know their family members. Um, For people who suddenly deteriorate in terms of their respiratory status and need to be intubated, it's our trusting relationships not only with the patient but also with their family members that allow us to have meaningful and supportive conversations around end of life, even if we haven't necessarily had those conversations when they were well. Yeah, and I guess that I guess we're not seeing the the cradle to grave GP so much these days and. Um, Iona Heath was telling us about the, 
the credit that you store up in, when, when you are that GP, but I guess even when you're not a cradle to grave GP or, or even as a sessional or locum GP, um, there's still an important role, isn't there? Yeah, and I guess if you think about it from the patient's perspective, that kind of level of trust that you have with your your surgery or GP practice, even if you're seeing an individual, you know, I mean, it's even more compounded if you're seeing the same GP, which a lot, a lot of, I guess, the frailer, um, older patients may well be seeing. But um, there, there is that trusting relationship with your GP surgery, your your mm. GP that you know I think is really powerful. Yeah. So I wanted to share something that one of my friends and co-residents in New York City wrote. Um, he's currently volunteering some of his time providing virtual palliative care support to families um, with loved ones who are hospitalized right now. And he wrote, um, I was surprised by how much today's calls with these families moved me. During the calls, I was reminded of just how hard it is for families to not be able to visit their loved ones in the hospital. I was reminded of just how overwhelming serious medical illness and the associated decision-making can be for families. But more than anything, I was reminded of something that is so easy to forget when all we see is PPE, ventilators, and tubes. That is, that everyone who is in hospital right now had a life before they got sick, and most had a family that loves them very much. I think that is clear when families are visiting, telling stories, meeting with care teams, and ultimately... I think families appreciated receiving an extra phone call from the hospital with information and support, and any rapport that comes from these calls will make challenging decisions just a little bit easier to discuss over the following days. The element there of speaking with families when patients are unable to speak for themselves really resonated with me. Mm-hmm. I'm just checking on Navjoy because she, she's cried in two of her episodes so far. I just wonder if we've got her there. I'm okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I feel like when we're actually talking about death rather than it being hinted at, I'm, I'm kind of on, on firm, firmer territory. <laughs> the elephant in the room is, is out. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so Navjoy, you, you tell us about your first interview because this um, covers one aspect of this, doesn't it? With, particularly with advanced care planning, which is quite quite kind of popular these days? Yeah, so I think one of the um, things that GPs are being encouraged to do, um, among a lot of things I know, but one of them is to have um, conversations with um, uh, their patients who might meet this category about sort of care planning in general. And for some of those patients, that will involve thinking about um, their uh, wishes um, at, towards the end of life. And um, so I, when we were discussing this episode, the, the first person we thought of to talk about this was um, Professor Scott Murray, who's based in Edinburgh um, and is a professor of primary palliative care. He's a GP and um, he's written for us before about the importance of um, early palliative care in particular. And what he means by that is um to start thinking about wishes towards the end of the life and goals and preferences earlier on in a disease trajectory so that you can really kind of um, start thinking about these things at a time when you're relatively well. And so 
we spoke to Scott about um, having some of these conversations, how to go about it, and some of the tools that we can use to help us um, through all of this. So why don't we have a listen? Yes, I'm a general practitioner, retired quite recently, and I was really interested in early palliative care or helping people beyond cancer and with all illnesses to live and die well. And that involved really thinking about when they could be assisted from. And so that's why I got into the idea of how are people actually dying towards the end of life? And I did some studies of illness trajectories towards the end of life. And we've been talking about the role of GPs during this COVID-19 crisis, um, particularly this this kind of question of dying well and what that means. Um, and I think there's a, a role for GPs in, as it all, you know, as they have for a number of years in planning care for their patients and asking about preferences um, at the end of life. And at the time we're recording this interview just before Easter, it's been quite topical you know with news reports of people dying without family present in hospitals um and sort of this outrage at surgeries that have been you know um trying to work through dnar policies and you know you're hearing about people applying blanket policies to care home residents and that sort of thing um and but as we've just been saying this has always been a part of primary care this advanced care planning um, particularly as multimorbidity and frailty have become so prominent, but the current crisis seems to have made it so much more acute. So, Scott, I'm interested to know what what do you think the response should be um, to the crisis in primary care? Well, I think the acute response is to try to help people identify and immediately manage, and there's lots of good assistance for GPs and others through the BMG and otherwise to how to deal with such consultations. Because, in fact, the idea of advanced care planning has been shown to be associated with more person and patient-centred care. It comes up, we don't immediately go to DNA or IRA or, or these things and upset, but we just say to someone, OK, how are you? How can we best support you at this stage? And there's some super resources out that we can be using uh, as general practitioners. And my colleague Kirsty Smith up in uh, Edinburgh here has done some to be used throughout Scotland. And these aids are actually for doing over the phone. Uh, so we are, they're cognizant of that. And they're specifically made for dealing with people who actually have COVID. So people who have got uh, COVID... It's good to actually think about what the future may entail for them. Yes, they've got COVID, they've got an acute exacerbation, but that is happening in the context of, a, 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 if you want, a, a, pro, a progressive illness or a trajectory of decline. And knowing where that person is on that illness helps them understand and it helps us understand how we might plan ahead. You, you mentioned that you know some of these tools are available remotely and I think that's a big challenge that GPs are having is that you know it's hard to have these conversations at the best of time but with face-to-face time being so limited um, it makes communication that much harder. Um, do you have any tips for how clinicians can do this effectively remotely and sensitively remotely? The first thing to say is I think a lot of clinicians especially in primary care are quite used to speaking and trying to befriend people and I'm used to telephone consultations so it's building on that so folks shouldn't think oh, I can never do it but there are certainly tips and there are tips specifically for speaking to people uh, in the community there's tips for speaking to 
people in care homes, specifically at this time with the risk of COVID. There are tips for relatives of people in care homes where we first acknowledge that this isn't a diff an easy thing to do in this situation and building on that. And for instance, an acronym of RED MAP is one. So READY, R stands for being ready to uh, building up a relationship and, and with tone. And then finding out what the person might expect and what they think is going on. And that's when we can maybe explain, well, Yes, that's what's going on. But what, what, and you ask what are your main worries or concerns and trying to understand these and knowing the, the stage the person's in, because yes, they may have COVID. They, they, they are actually, what we know that if they have got COVID with underlying COPD, well, possibly they've had uh, exacerbations and been into hospital before. So they, we, we may then talk about, well, what will happen if that happens again? Don't, and it may be that we don't talk about DNAR or does this person have to be on a respirator? That may come later. So it's, and, and it can be done over time, if possible. Right. So I think the the kind of overriding message I'm getting from you is we're not reinventing the wheel. These are all skills and tools that we're using already. This idea of you know introducing the idea um, and uh, building building on it over time and and you know perhaps reintroducing it at, at the next consultation, you know, uh, this is all stuff that we're doing already. Yes, exactly. And uh, the, the chair of the college was saying yesterday how important it is to remember that people are dying of COVID indeed. But in fact, even during a pandemic, many more people are dying every day of other illnesses. And so we must remember those as well. Yeah. And, and actually, you've always... Um, you were saying, you know, your interest has been in disease trajectory and you've been a proponent of having these conversations earlier within that trajectory. Um, so do you, so do you think the this identification that NHS England or, you know, wherever you are, your, your uh, body um, is trying to do, do you think that that is that does facilitate those conversations? You can kind of well, it, it then identifies, say, a list of people. So then they, 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 you've got someone to work on. So there are tools that can be used, such as the gold standards framework or the supportive and palliative care tool up in Scotland here, which identify around 1% of people. And that's the group that may not die, they're expected to die over the next year or two, and those are the very people who may are at risk of dying in the next month or two with the epidemic. So, so that's the group that really are trying to contact very quickly, phoning up and explaining, and they know what's happening. And a lot of people may say, oh, I don't want to talk about this. And the thing is, don't be put off, because sometimes they say, but I realise it's a good idea to talk about, it's good for me. So they acknowledge it's difficult and we have to acknowledge that this is a difficult conversation, but it's probably good for the outcome. Because if we talk about it, things may happen according to your wishes. And that's what all that a care plan is. Right. So that's a good a good message to, to emphasise. And I think particularly because, you know, people are scared. I think, you know, you that it's I guess the difference with COVID nineteen is that there is there is so much talk about death and there's a lot of kind of uh uh, focus on death happening in ways that is out of people's control um, you know perhaps it's difficult to control the circumstances in which it happens um, what, what do you think might be a, a sort of way of addressing that or acknowledging that with um, patients mm -hmm. yes you say people are scared and you're quite right people are scared of dying largely and people with cancer largely have that 
traditionally as a thing to think about. But people with the frailty or dementia, you know, or frailty especially, have got other things that are more worried about, you could say, such as losing their marbles, being a burden to carers, or going into a care home. So these are the things that to be patient-centred, that's the things to discuss and dying. So with the COVID coming on top of that, we, we can then deal with them all together. And then if they realise, hey, we're on the same place, we're trying to make a plan to really help me, that's when a plan can be very helpful and very useful. Just a word about competing narratives also. you know, Again, people say, oh, I don't want to talk about this. But we know from our in-depth research that people have competing narratives in their mind. They've got the restitution, the getting better narrative, yeah, and going to get better, but they've also got a more realistic one, uh, which they're willing to share, which is, yes, I know uh, that I may get ill. And it's just allowing people to tap into that one. I know this is difficult. I know we're trying to get better, but let's consider what might happen. And most people would like to have that opportunity with someone that they can trust. And at a time like this, we have to do that. Would I say people with COVID need palliative care? I would never say it to them, because there's still this horrible word about palliative care is associated so much with death and dying. So more support. How can I help you? Yeah, I know some experts are really good at breathlessness. I'll get one of them come up to come across. You might warn them they might be called palliative care, but it's sadly so stigmatised. It's the approach or the principles of palliative care eh, can be integrated in normal clinical care by all specialties. Well, that's what's been, I think, so useful in talking to you today. I feel very reassured that actually, you know, what initially when you think about it, you know, um, advanced or anticipatory care planning with people in this time of COVID-19 seems quite daunting and um, sort of overwhelming. But actually, we have a lot of the tools in place already. We know how to do this. And some of it is just applying and adapting those tools. To yes, because there are many current setting. Yeah, many existing tools to be adapted. Um, for, for someone who has got COVID, well, they're actually just suddenly having an acute issue in an otherwise trajectory. And if they haven't got COVID, well, let's identify such people. And in the future, how can we better identify the other people who don't have COVID so they can also benefit from advanced care planning? We call it anticipatory care because it was about anticipating the future. But it's just thinking ahead. That's what we're trying to do. So care planning is good for your health and good for your death in due course. So it was interesting talking to Scott about his thoughts because I had got into the reason why I wanted to speak to him was I was finding the whole idea of advanced care planning quite overwhelming. Um, you know, you feel like there are a lot of people you need to talk to. It feels like it needs to be done urgently. And how do we do it over the phone? And what do we do with all these lists that NHS England are circulating? And actually talking to him, I realised that this is probably something that's, um, you know, not going to not going to come out of the blue for people. There'll be a recognition, I think, for a lot of people in their fear or in their, you know, you know, they might be scared and they might have other issues, but they may, there may be some receptiveness to, to wanting to have these conversations that might not just be about COVID. It might be about their overall trajectory in general. So it was, it was helpful, I found, in that sense that, you know, actually this is, as I said in the interview, it's not reinventing the wheel. Mm. Um, I had the same takeaway as you, Navjoy, just that it's a difficult topic to 
bring up, um, we worry that patients will get the wrong idea or that they'll think we're not there to try to save their life at all costs or that in some cases people, when the idea of talking about this comes up, may think that people are giving up on them. And it's not that at all. I really liked what um, the way that Scott Murray said it, which was um, making sure that their death is the way that they want it to be. And I thought that was a really nice way of kind of um, framing it so that people who indeed may want to have this conversation um, approach it from the right kind of productive way. And I was thinking about all the guidelines and um, sort of emails I get sent about this topic. And I, I just wonder if we just completely overthought it and we, we, all you need to do really is speak to the person, how are you doing? Um, you know, and, and, and just, just like we do so well as GPs, I think this is our forte really, isn't it? Is having a real conversation mm. with a real person and if they want to talk about what they expect, I, I, I like that thing about what do you, what would you expect to happen? And I think that, that sounds mm. like a good way into that conversation. Um, but also we've, we've had a few patients in our practice who were, I think when other doctors have had that conversation have said, well, there's no way I'm going to hospital. You know, I don't want to, you know, if I've got, got coronavirus. And, and actually you, we've identified quite a lot of very... I suppose expectations which need challenging a little bit, you know, because actually you can you can go into hospital and come out again. I think there's this um, there's so much fear around that people are thinking, well, there's no way I can go into hospital. I don't because I'll die there. Where actually people do get better from coronavirus. The you know, oxygen is helpful for yeah. some people, um, and so as well as the help you get from these discussions about planning death, you can also um, kind of other things can come out too. That's such a good point, Tom, because I think in this episode of the podcast where we're focusing on death, I think you remind me that actually, um, you know, so many people are recovering from coronavirus who go, go who go into hospital. Mm. And that's so important to kind of to tell people that, that, you know, even though we're introducing these conversations about what you would happen, what, what you would want to happen in the event of, you know, yeah. actually, it's, it's not a, you know, yeah. it's not like you'll get. Yeah. Yeah. The other Sorry, thing I was, no, <laughs> fine, I do that. That's like my normal sentence structure. I just tail off, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> um, uh, the other thing I liked was that actually we're so obsessed with death that we sometimes forget to ask people, like, is that the most important thing to you? And so often it isn't. In fact, it seems to be more often than not, you know, and sometimes the thing that people will say is more important seems to me like, is that is that really more important than dying? You know, you're worried about being a burden. Um, you know, but also the quality of life. I, I, that was a useful reminder. Jenny. So it seems like we're talking almost about kind of two scenarios. There are the kind of patients who kind of don't have COVID yet and who are who might have it that we now have the opportunity to have these conversations with in this, you know, spirit of, what do you expect or what's important to you or how would you want things to go or even what are you worried about? Um, and where it's not necessarily too late to have those conversations, even if it feels a little doomy and gloomy. Um, and then there's this other group of people who are already sick 
um, who I think are, you know, the really challenging patients who may or may not be able to have this conversation themselves and who, you know, it, it then becomes the job of the family trying to help clarify what the person's wishes are um, and then liaising with us as GPs around, you know, what that means for their care and, you know, trying to arrange virtual vigils at people's bedsides in some cases. So should we, should we move on to talk a bit about beyond death and, and um, not so much for the patient, but for the, for the family members who have lost somebody to, to coronavirus and how awful that must be. And, and some of the circumstances are really horrific, aren't they? You know, not being able to see your, your loved ones if, if they're in hospital or, or in a care home. Um, I imagine that does something to your grief and how you react to it. Yeah. Yeah. There have been so many personal accounts from, from doctors um, that have been, you know, on, on social media, in the news, just about the toll that it is taking on them personally, watching um, the incredible strife of families not being able to personally say goodbye, or in some cases limited to only one family member at the bedside. And, you know, so many of my experiences um, as patients approach end of life has been, you know, supportive family members there at the final moment, you know, together celebrating this person's life. And and that's been kind of stripped away um, in these times. So we thought it would be great to talk to someone who really knows a lot about grief and, and to ask, you know, how is grief going to be different in coronavirus times and, and what we can do to, to help our, our patients. So I spoke to Catherine Shear, who's the founder of the Centre for Complicated Grief in New York City, to ask her about this. But before that, a word from our sponsors. When you're a GP, you're not just nine to five. Being a GP is part of who you are, whatever the time of day. So when it comes to your indemnity, you need protection you can turn to whenever you need it. With new challenges always arising, we're here with expert medico-legal advice available 24-7 in an emergency. And because we're discretionary, we've got the flexibility to protect you for a wide range of situations with individual support that's tailored to your needs. During the current crisis, we know GPs need this flexible support more than ever. Visit medicalprotection.org to find out how we are helping our members through this challenging time, including policy changes, extended membership benefits, and medico-legal advice. And now back to Catherine Shear from the Centre for Complicated Grief. My name is Dr. Catherine Shear. And I serve as the director of the Center for Complicated Grief at Columbia University School of Social Work. I'm a psychiatrist, and I've done clinical research in, um, in basically in grief treatments for about uh, 20, 30 years now. So since you work in New York City, which is, of course, the sort of epicenter of coronavirus at the moment, can you give us some insights about what, what's happening there? Well, um, sadly, of course, there are a lot of deaths and they're occurring in 
very, very difficult and unfortunate circumstances, as we all know, and I think as is occurring, of course, around the world. The impact that these deaths, of course, are going to have a massive effect on thousands, probably tens of millions of lives in New York City. Millions um, of lives, yeah. Do we need to think of grief to, to coronavirus in, in a slightly different way? I think we do, actually, for so many different reasons. But let me just say a little bit about um, just grief in general, of course, is it's certainly a, um, a profound experience that when we lose someone close, someone in our family, that's really what we're talking about right now. Um, and so it's going to be very personal. That said, you know, there's some typical features of grief, which I think it's important for clinicians to be aware of. And they're simple, really. We're, we're not talking about stages. Grief does not occur in stages. That's, that's one thing that we have learned. Um, researchers have really looked for those stages and haven't found them. But um, it's <clears throat> the people that we love and that we're close to, they just help us anchor our lives. They help us manage our emotions. They even have physiologic effects, actually, out of our awareness that have been documented. And so when when they're when we lose them when they're gone it's just like sort of like an earthquake that shakes the foundation of our minds ourself even and it, we experience that in a with intense emotions and a lot of kind of preoccupying thoughts about the person who died and a lot of the things that we we do are kind of centered around remembering honoring missing the person sometimes searching for them even though the, even though we know they're gone and but that you know it's not one emotion people sometimes think of grief as an emotion it's not one emotion but it's a whole bunch of emotions it's really almost any any emotions that we feel can be associated with grief so we often the, the center of it is yearning and longing and sadness of course but then there's really often there's anxiety, there's anger, there's guilt, there's even shame sometimes. Um, and, and also we have positive emotions. So we, you know, we remember the person and we can do that in a sort of dissociated way where we're, we're just feeling the warmth and the pride in them. And I guess you see a bit of that with some of the videos we see of family members. Um, we're seeing this in, in, in the UK, um, you know, the son of a doctor who's died, you know, talking very proudly and and boldly about about their, their their loved one exactly exactly and they can do that with composure which in a way is is surprising because of because so so just a couple of other things about grief generally which is one of them is that the exact way that you're experiencing grief at any one moment is variable right so it's kind of erratic it kind of depends on who walks into the room what or, or onto your your zoom screen i guess in this in this situation um and so it's kind of erratic but over time we do adapt and as we do the grief doesn't go away completely but it does settle down a lot so so we see that transition so, yeah if, if we look at coronavirus then what might be slightly specific about about grief in in this era um I so said one thing that occurs to me is that it's quite maybe quite quite unexpected for for many completely unexpected and and actually quite relatively quick compared to with a lot of illness which is more over months or or even years you might be seeing the person become more unwell how, how does that affect the grieving response that process of adaptation 
takes a long, you know, it takes a while for most people. And the, the more sudden the death is and unexpected, like you're saying, the longer it's going to take um, over time. But the most important thing is that that process of adapting can get derailed and it gets derailed by some very typical kinds of things that coronavirus is going to increase the risk for those derailers. From a big picture perspective, we need to find a way to accept the reality, which, you know, it sounds like, well, of course, you know, the person died, but actually your whole brain doesn't know it right away because you kind of have to experience what it's like to live without them before you really understand what that means and that they're really gone and not coming back. Like, you know, Joan Didion in our, you know, you, do you know the Joan Didion book, The a Year of Magical Thinking? Have you heard of that? She's no. a very famous writer and she wrote, her husband died very suddenly and um, and she just, she did things like um, keep his shoes lined up in the closet because he might need them when they when he comes back. And of course, she was she's a brilliant woman. She didn't think he was really exactly coming back, but something in her did think that. So we have this kind of, we need to wrap our mind around it and comprehend it. The other thing that's really natural that people can get caught up in is, is um, sort of counter, it's called counterfactual thinking. And psychologists have studied this a lot. And we do it whenever anything happens in our lives that we don't want to happen. We, we, are, we start simulating alternative scenarios, basically, alternative ways that it could have gone so the person wouldn't have died. So you know where I'm going with this. But, you know, we do this very, very naturally. Everyone does it after someone close dies, and especially suddenly. Yeah. I'm thinking, um, you know, had there been proper PPE or different PPE, or had they been better, um, you know, cared for by their by their team, so to speak, is that is that the kind of thing that people will... Exactly. Know? That's a, That's exactly, yes. And, I mean, by the way, it's not only... Doctors, it's also, you know, if I hadn't gone to the grocery store that day, maybe I wouldn't have gotten, maybe I brought the virus. Maybe we think that I brought the virus in from that grocery store visit or that whatever. And then I, I got a little bit sick, but, you know, my someone, my spouse or someone died. And, you know, you can gently challenge that a little bit, you know, not exactly challenge it, but gently First of all, validate. I think it's important to validate the fact that it's so natural to, to start thinking that way so that you don't just tell the person, oh, you know, don't think that way because that's what all their friends and family are doing. Yeah, don't be silly. So it couldn't possibly be. Yeah, when, right. when, of course, it could have been. Yeah, yeah, it could have been. And and also even even sometimes, you know, even if it's something that couldn't be, you still it's still very natural to do it, and it's actually adaptive. It's an adaptive process writ large, but but um, in this setting, of course, you're thinking that way. I would think that way too. I might say, or you basically want to be mostly listening and empathizing where you can, and providing that listening ear. It's just really important for for someone who's grieving to have people listen to them. They need to feel heard. And they will usually, if they have that space of really feeling heard, they will start to kind of do these things themselves because we are, we do have natural adaptive mechanisms. There is one other thing that I think is is notable, um, which is something called survivor guilt. Again, it's something very natural for people to feel, but then they don't, then they feel like they don't deserve to be 
happy anymore. They don't, they feel uncomfortable when they actually have moments of positive emotions. Positive emotions, having some respite, you know, from, from the pain, from the emotional pain during grief is pretty important. And really, you will do that naturally. Your mind will kind of kind of oscillate between the pain and kind of setting it aside. And, and you know, people can usually distract you and even tell you jokes or things like that. I mean, and, and you know, and laugh. And um, that's very healthy and very important. There's a timing with this. And so it may not be like right after the person died, you may just feel very uncomfortable and not also be very inclined to have positive emotions. But as time goes on, you know, you want to make sure that's kind of a part of what the person is experiencing, that they're start to, starting to kind of come back and have pleasant experiences, positive experiences. Yeah, so that's helpful. So trying try to resist the urge to kind of set them straight, <laughs> so put, put, put them, yes. uh, yeah. yeah. Of course, the challenge, I, I just have to say that I think the challenge is that, you know, um, most general practitioners don't have a huge amount of time to set aside, right? I mean, that's the, and that's really tricky because when someone is grieving and they want to talk and you have to rush them along, you know, so whatever you can do to, to have a certain amount, maybe tell them, you know, let's talk. I have 10 minutes now. Let's talk. To, I can't talk to you for two hours, but I can talk to you for 10 minutes. Something, I don't know, something like that. So the person knows you want to, li- I really want to hear you. You know, I want to hear what your experience is like, that sort of thing. That's a good tip. Yeah, maybe saying that at the outset rather than um, so cutting them off mid, <laughs> yes, mid yes. story. Yeah. Um, another aspect I wanted to to, to look at with you is um, for people who don't aren't allowed into the hospital, you know, to yes. to be with their loved ones in those last days or moments. How how is that going to affect people? Well, again, so that is going to that's going to probably trigger those that sort of. Um, caregiving, you know, we're caregivers of the people that we love. And so it's going to, it's going to trigger that side of us that feels that they were inadequately taken care of, right? And so that leads to either, mostly to either guilt or or, um, anger. So it's going to be angry at the system, it's going to be angry at the virus, it's going to be angry at the world, it's going to be angry at the doctors, It, it could be, you know, anybody like that, or, you know, or guilty, you know, I should have gone anyway, I should have just pushed my way through and been there. And I mean, people will have those kinds of thoughts. So it's really hard. I mean, the truth is, again, you know, we we are all capable of, of adapting. So I'll give you an example. My daughter, I have a daughter who lives across the country from me. And when this all started, she said, Mom, I'm driving across the country so I can be with you. And I said, don't be ridiculous. I said, first of all, if you're with me, all that's going to happen, if I get sick, you're just going to get sick too. You know, that's not going to help anything. And also what we already knew is that if we die, we're going to die alone. And we know it's for good reason, um, sad though though it is. So what I said to her was, look, you know, I know you love me. I know you would be there with me if you absolutely, if you possibly could. And I would want you there. But we both know that it can't be. So we, we have to tell ourselves things like that and our loved ones in our minds, even if we didn't say it, you know, because it happened too fast or something. But, you know, truly, we, we do know the people who love us. <laughs> you okay, Jenny? Oh, no. I'm Okay. I'm okay. That was such a good interview. It was so good. It was so good. 
so I think that the most important thing about that interview for me was, um, have you heard of the year of magical thinking? Because I, I feel a bit a bit stupid not having heard of that. Jenny's nodding. Yes, in fact, Joan Didion um, wrote the book. This, so in the same year, her husband and her daughter died. Um, and I haven't read it because I, I don't know that I'll be able to handle going there mentally. I have read it. And Joan Didion is like just such a brilliant, brilliant writer. But I think I read it at a time in my life that was kind of before I'd really experienced grief kind of I, I'd be interested to go back and read it now I think because I think I'd get a lot more out of it she's she's an exceptional writer oh, maybe that's for the deep breath in book club <laughs> yeah okay I, I, I only read I only read children's <laughs> books so so um we might have to start with like, Roald Dahl or something um but um looking at some of the other stuff in there um I thought it was really really useful to get some of those um, principles maybe of of, of of not the stages but the experiences that people have when they're grieving and and some of the things they can get caught up caught up in I think was her, her, her expression uh, the accepting the reality um, this counterfactual thinking which I thought was really well well explained and that, that survivor guilts which are all kind of probably going to be more likely if you lose someone to coronavirus and that was really helpful for me she described the experience of grief so eloquently with just the kind of like how it hits you like an earthquake and shakes up your life and talking about the variable way that people can experience grief and um, the different emotions that they can cycle through. Um, What particularly stuck out for me similarly was um, this idea of counterfactual thinking um, and I do that for the mi- most minute things in my life. Like if only I hadn't been in that place at that time, like this would have, like, I mean, you do that with just minor injuries, let alone um, a death. And then the need for people to really- It's good really... to have a name for it now, isn't it? You, I can, I can yeah. <laughs> keep right. that in my mind. Counterfactual thinking. And the need for people to feel heard. So that was such a good- like actionable thing that we as GPs can do is just bear witness and listen and kind of be there for people um, to give them that validation, Um, especially when they're dealing with emotions as intense as we didn't adequately care for this family member who's now suffered this terrible fate. I was going to say, I think a bit like um, the first uh, interview that we heard was that actually there are some kind of particular aspects to grief, I think, that we might be seeing, um, you know, the, the grief from of the loved ones of people who've died from COVID-19. But actually, again, a lot of this is, you know, grief, grief is such a kind of profound and broad experience that probably a lot of what we do already to support people, you know, again, we have, we have some of those skills already. Um, and I think this, you know, idea of of like really listening and, and hearing people um, and somehow, uh, I, I don't know, sort of helping people along that path to accepting some of those counterfactual arguments mm-hmm. and the fact that they couldn't be with their loved ones. I thought what Catherine was saying right at the end about, you know, how she's had this conversation with her daughter about how, you know, of course, we would want to be together at the end, but but that that can't happen and ultimately we will die alone. I mean, 
that, that sort of hit me like a gut punch. I, I was interested say. by that. I was expecting her to say something along the lines of, you know, relatives should be given PPE to go into um, to go into to rooms to be with their loved ones. But actually, she said the opposite. Actually, which I thought was thinking about it afterwards was probably right. You know, have these conversations now with your with your loved ones, so they're not left feeling. Um, you know, worse than they need to, I suppose. I also thought that was so profound, the way that she phrased it. Like, we are all going to die alone for good reason. Like, re-emphasizing that we are all in this together to try to help those of us in our community who may um, be most vulnerable. I just, that was so profound. I still have a question about, about um, I suppose, funerals and, like, saying goodbye to people um and how i guess how that would um you know the fact that with um people being in self-isolation or needing to to you know or, or not being able to go to funerals how how that kind of because that seems to me to be such an important part of the um process um that yeah i wonder i wonder whether we'll be seeing sort of you know waves of memorials happening and that kind of thing in in years to come for you know the funerals that people couldn't attend now are people doing zoom funerals i've seen zoom zoom weddings well in some of the diaspora communities um and i know this from my in-laws family they're already setting up virtual they have been doing virtual funeral services for years for folks with family members living on the other side of the world. Um, And I'm not sure to what extent we'll be seeing more of that, but I do wonder about, you know, the, about how, you know, we as GPs can help and what other services might be required to support so many people through survivor's guilt going forward yeah and I guess the other thing is um how the health profession GPs people in doctors in hospitals how we cope with our own grief as well because I think we'll be witnessing um uh, you know so much so much um dying over kind of a concentrated period of time or at least that's that's what it seems like um that Uh, Yeah, I wonder if we need more support for that too. So it feels like we've got a lot more to to talk on this, but uh, I think we've we've run out of time today, but maybe we'll come back to some of these themes in, in future episodes. Thank you to Scott and Catherine for talking to us. Uh, and thank you, Jenny and Navjoy, as well. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. So we hope you're enjoying Deep Breath In. Let us know what you think using the hashtag Deep Breath In or email practice at bmj.com. Or even better, rate us on your podcast app. And remember that podcast ratings are a bit like Uber ratings. If you get anything less than five stars, then um, people won't want to, to listen to us. Um, it's, it's time now for Deep Breath Out, uh, the part of the show where we get to relax. Today we have some music for you, nominated by the legendary South London GP and Head of King's undergraduate GP education, Anne Stevenson, who I also work with. The track is by Hans Bühler, a composer and professor of engineering at MIT. 
It's a musical representation of the amino acid sequence and structure of the spike protein of the pathogen of COVID-19. And it's called Viral Counterpoint of the Coronavirus Spike Protein. Enjoy.